Hello? Hello? Can you hear me? If you can, join me as I read my way around the world, one historical journey and one country at a time. My name is Annie and this is my podcast, Around the World in Six Books. Here we go! Welcome back! In this episode, I'm going to summarize book 5, titled How You 2.0, The Korean Wave in the Age of Social Media, as edited by San Yu Lee and Abe Mark Norns. Towards the end of the episode, I'll introduce you to the title of book 6, woohoo! Last book in this journey. And then there is an encore section. The question that I was hoping that book 5 would help answer is, why is the world, including myself, so fascinated by anything that is Korean? And the simple answer to this question, according to this book, is scholars don't know. Everyone from entertainment executives to politicians, fans, and academics was surprised by the phenomenon of the Korean wave, which is what Hallyu means, from its first iteration in the 1990s. But instead, what this book provides is an analysis and review of the reasons, the trends, the populations, and the mediums involved in the creation of different Hallyu waves, and how they are sustained, promoted, and expanded. For instance, one of the explanations for the popularity of anything that is Korean is the concept of cultural proximity. That is, it's very appealing to a lot of countries that are close together because they share similar values like Confucianism, historically, right? But the concept of cultural proximity doesn't really help to explain why everything that is part of the Korean wave It's so appealing to non-Asian audiences. So apart from that, a little bit more background on what Hallyu is and what it is all about. Hallyu is translated as the Korean wave, like I mentioned, or the sounding popularity of Korean products like television series, music, and other items. The first wave happened in the mid-1990s and early 2000s with the popularity in China of actor An Jae-woo and the phenomenon of Young Sama in Japan. Yon-sama is an honorific title for the actor Bai Yong-yoon, who was the male protagonist in the Korean series Winter Sonata, and also through the popularity of Korean K-pop groups uh, like H.O.T. That first wave's popularity reallocated resources to the promoting and capitalization of Korean products, including those of the government and the birth of a new scholarship on the subject. And because some of the scholarship has been funded by the government, some of the authors of the current volume make the argument that you cannot see this kind of research that's funded by the government as something that is objective because it has been compromised at that level. The Korean wave's popularity also turned these cultural products into money-making machines and Korean experts. And that's an emphasis that they make throughout the whole book, all of the authors, is that you have to consider the K-pop bands, the series, the actors, the personalities, anything as man-made products. Hallyu is a synthetic concoction that relies on demand and supply. We as consumers demand and they, as an industry, provide us with that. And what they provide us with is intended to cement our loyalty as fans to these acts, to these products, to these public personas who wear things that we want to wear, and consequently we go and we buy them, 
who promote certain values, who promote certain personas and certain styles. And even when they deviate from some degree or are rebellious from what the societal norms are, they're still compliant and infuse harmony and fitting in when, even when they're trying not to fit in. It's quite a point that they make there. So you also have a lot of versatile celebrities, people who can sing, who can dance, who can act in movies, who can do stunts, who are martial artists. They can do everything so that as a product, a lot of these celebrities fit in in a lot of industries and consequently generate a lot more money. How you is also multimedia based and interactive. When a series premieres and producers start monitoring what fans are saying online, that actually shapes the plots and uh, the storylines and who the characters are and who is popular and who stays and who grows within the series. Everything is connected. One of the examples in terms of the explosion of how you then the authors provide is how Sai and his open Gangnam style came into being a global celebrity. Sai was considered a domestic celebrity in South Korea, yet he became a global sensation through the popularity of his song in YouTube. And that's part of how multimedia and social media actually plays a role into the popularity of Hallyu through computer games, through purchasing powers, through online communities, you name it, social media can provide an avenue for keeping the Hallyu waves alive. And while the primary demographic of Hallyu right now is in their 20s or teens, it all started with middle-aged women who became very enthusiastic about the male leads in K-series, at least in Japan. And I've got to say, if I was Japanese, I would be probably part of this demographic right now. So book five was published eight years ago in 2015, pre-COVID pandemic and prior to Parasite winning several Oscars in 2020. But K-dramas surged in popularity as people are isolated during the pandemic. That was certainly the case. Uh, in my family, and many of us were bored. That popularity has continued to soar, it seems, as we go back to normal. And K-pop is pretty much mainstream in the West right now, as groups like Blackpink and BTS, BTS I'm sorry, collaborate with Western artists, and K-actors like Park Seo Joon and Lee byung Hun make their presence felt in Hollywood productions. And you may not know by name these actors, However, Park Seo Joon is going to be in a Marvel movie. No one really knows what role he's going to play. We just know that he's going to be there. And yes, I said we because as of now, I read Korean gossip when it comes to celebrities. Oh no, yes. I, it's a guilty pleasure amongst others. I also watch a lot of TV, uh, TMZ and I read their website. <laughs> <clears throat> Anyhow, and Lee Byung Han, he played Storm Shadow in the G.I. Joe movies and has had other high-profile roles in several movies, Hollywood movies like Red with Bruce Willis. So I wonder when I was preparing this episode, are we entering a new Hallyu era? Are we in Hallyu 3.0? And so I asked the almighty internet for its knowledge. As it turns out, we're past Hallyu 3.0. We are currently in Hallyu 4.0. <gasps> what, in eight years? Yes, in eight years. So here's a summary of what each wave has actually focus-wise, product-wise, uh, since 
it started in the mid 1990s. So How You 1.0 was about K-drama. That was the primary product. 2.0 was K-pop. 3.0 was culture. And 4.0 is K-style, like by Megab. And I can see that progression in someone like my niece and the younger females in my family. But for me, it's everything is just together, right? Because I'm new to this Korean obsession. And uh, mind you, I also came across a couple of studies on consumer trends in Vietnam and the Philippines as it relates to Hallyu 4.0. And speaking of Korean products, because I've become such an avid consumer of its gastronomy and why wouldn't I? Korean cuisine is delicious. And I'm starting to venture into cooking of some Korean dishes and purchasing ingredients. I'm going to end this six book journey through South Korea with a book about its cuisine. And that book, which is book six in this journey, it's titled Korean Cuisine, an illustrated guide, and it's edited by Luna Kion and Angie. Again, book six is Korean Cuisine, an illustrated guide, as edited by Luna Kion and Angie. And because food seems to be at the heart of how Koreans socialize, I am wondering, and this is the question that I'm hoping that book six will help answer it, what can I learn about Korean society by learning about its culinary traditions? If you've made it this far, thank you for staying tuned. There is an encore to this episode. Thank you for listening to my podcast around the world in six books, one historical journey and one country at a time. My name is Annie. Have a lovely day. Now this is the anchor section. Thank you for staying tuned. So when I came across book five, I was so excited because of the possibility that the book would help answer the question that, that I have. I wanted to understand why I was so fascinated with this whole Korean wave and why everyone else was too. That I didn't realize until I got the book in the mail that it was a scholarly work and it was meant for an audience of scholars. And that complicated matters because how do I summarize a book like that for you? And also, what if I don't get to understand everything included in the book? So even though that was the case, there is a lot of opportunity here because in scholarly works not produced for the general audience, you may have chapters that are based on research studies that have dense theoretical discussions and the methodologies can be jargony too and too many details that we just don't need, right? But there's plenty of opportunity there because precisely because they're edited volumes, they're likely to contain a lot of chapters on a lot of other subjects than you would otherwise need to buy separate books for. So in this volume, for instance, we get to learn as readers about subjects like K-pop, K-television, the fans, Korean diaspora in the US, Koreans living in Japan known as Zainikis, consumption of K-products in countries like Israel, and other underlying topics like discrimination, patriarchy, labor exploitation, beauty standards, and so much more. Song Yuki, the actor, that's right, I keep naming him, but he's a phenomenon in South Korea.
He is the main lead in a series titled Descendants of the Song. So when I watched that series because of Song Yuki, and also it has a great cast, let's not kid ourselves. The group Red Velvet came on stage at some point throughout the series, and I have to say it irked me. Right? There was something about Red Velvet not to bother the fans out there. I'm just simply stating that there was something about them that I did not like. And that puzzled me because I had a similar reaction to other K-girl groups. And I've been wondering why. Even though I'm a moderate feminist, I think I ought to support female artists. Why is it that this was bothering me? And that was actually making me feel guilty because I could not get myself to enjoy these groups. So I came across this chapter in book five, and that chapter is perfect for considering some answers for this reaction that I've been having as a, again, middle-aged woman. The title of the chapter is Chapter 4, Uniformity and Non-Uniformity, The Packaging of Korean Girl Groups by Royal Malian K. The language of this chapter is fairly accessible to anyone. And in part, I think it is because it's not a study per se, but rather a discussion of how K-pop girl bands are stylized and promoted to appeal to certain audiences. Roald Malianke also looks at how stylistic elements of individuality and rebellion are marketed as part of these acts, but they are still meant not to deviate too much from conformist and femininity models. That is, they're marketed to appeal to those who reject fitting in, but are still meant to fit in enough with ideas of what a woman should look and behave like so that groups that are traditionalists um, do not judge them or feel isolated from these groups and it maintains societal harmony, right? So he compares girl bands to boy bands and how they share a lot of similarities, like they usually have a rapper in the group, they emulate R&B groups, they have choreographed dance routines, and there is an emphasis on looks and the visual aspects of the acts since this is part of the large appeal of K-pop. But Malian K also explains that in the promotion and content of girl bands, there is an eroticized naivete, and that's an expression that he uses. And what he mean, what he means by that, is that these girl groups are innocent enough looking, but there is in very sexual way about that innocence, right? And how girl groups, just like boy bands, are products meant to inspire fan loyalty. They're customized so that fans fantasize about being one of the members of these groups and to reflect a lot of the pressures also experienced by the fans, like conforming. So the members of the group may have specific stylistic differences in hair and clothing that appeal to specific fans and their sense of style, but this is also marketing as they become promoters and supporters of the fashion industry as the fans support them through their consumption. And there is a K-series, oh no, not a K-series again. This is going like the route of... Book one, she's obsessed with this stuff. A little bit, I mean. <laughs> K-series are actually good. Ay, you don't, you have to watch. So there's this K-series titled The Fabulous, and you can see some of that relationship between, and the, the systemic connection between the fashion industry and idols. And one of the male leads in that series, The Fabulous, his name is Minor or Minor, and he is one of the singers in the K-pop band Shiny. So remember that whole thing about uh, 
versatile stars and how they can exist in various industries? Here's an example. Now, Malinke's reflection legitimized to some degree how I felt about Korean girl bands, but at the same time, they, he made me want to understand my feelings even more. In reading this chapter, I was challenged to look at my own biases, values, and felt an urge to try and open myself to appreciating these girl bands at different levels. So I decided to challenge myself and look into this further. I figure if I desensitize, if I watch enough, I'm going to like them at some point. So I spent a while, more than I should have, to be honest, listening, watching, and making notes in a table. That's right, I created a table as I was reading this chapter. And that table contained four columns. The first column, I included the group name and the song I was going to listen to. The second column included my listen notes, because I listened and then I took notes. Then the third column contained my watch notes, that is after I listened and I didn't watch the videos, I actually watched the videos and I took notes. And finally, I looked up the translations of the songs that I had listened to and watched the videos of. And then I did something similar with some of the boy bands that Malian K mentions and I took notes too. This activity confused me even more. As I was working on the episode, I listened again to the music to see if I still agreed with my original notes. And I even listened to other groups named by Malian K in the chapter just to be sure. Just at the listening level, I think I may have a partial answer as to why some of the groups me. I seem to be irritated by the uniformity of voices or when they're overly sweet or childlike. If there is a mixture of voices, I tend to love it. Like there's one sweet, there's one strong. It's just that kind of mixture I love. The musical styles also affected my perception. A lot of the 21 songs I listened to sounded differently. And I think crayon pop would be a great group in a disco scene, but for me, not outside of it. So it's not that I don't like the group, it's just once I start listening to more and I go past that single song, I find it a lot more challenging. Visually, the more childlike the group in terms of its appearance, the less I liked it. The more mature the look, the more I liked it. And that makes sense, at least for me. Whether they were all dressed alike or had different styles didn't mean much. It was the maturity of what was conveyed that appealed to me. Or how powerful the moves seemed. Like in the male videos, the moves are almost militaristic. And so are they in Blackpink's videos, even when they're dressed in very sexy and feminine outfits. Like I love Gankis. I just don't understand again why this group didn't move forward. And Blackpink. And this reminds me uh, a bit of Janet Jackson TLC and Destiny's Child's videos when I was watching some of these. Meaning-wise, after a little while, these songs became a bit depressing because some of the translations are about heartbreak and loneliness and this goes across the board in both male and female groups. And a lot of the songs are about seduction, though in the case of the male songs, they seem to be more proactive and aggressive. And there is a few songs about women obsessed with men, but not the other way around. So either this is a taboo or is not as acceptable as female over men obsession. Crayon Pop seems to be more positive and it grew up me compared with more adult looking bands across sexes. Thankfully, unless I look up the lyrics, 
I have the luxury of just enjoying their sounds. Now, I can't attest to the author's Mali and Kay's observations about how younger Asian fans see themselves reflecting in girl bands and how this they share similar pressures to fitting into cultural expectations related to females. Therefore, when the observations about the localized dynamics between girl and boy bands and their Asian fans resonates, it remains to be asserted by those who have witnessed this phenomenon from within. Right now, I'm just giving you my impressions and the struggle continues. Learning about the Asian fan base of a lot of the stars was one of the most surprising and admirable things I learned about from this book. And chapter five titled Of the Fans, By the Fans, For the Fans by Song uh, Lee shows how this is the case. I am in awe of them. They are an economic powerhouse and a driving force for social change. And this chapter describes it in a, in a way that just shows how that is the case. Chapter 5 is the story of how Jae Jung, Jun Shon, and Jun Sun, three members of my favorite actually K-pop band TVXQ, they left the group, accused its agency SM Entertainment of exploitation, and how the fans mobilized, stood by them, defended them, and paved the way for the legal protection and credibility of other artists facing similar situations. TVXQ was funded in 2003, and in 2001, I'm sorry, in 2009, these three artists decided to separate from the group and from the agency and accused them of exploitation. Now, you have to understand also that TVXQ was huge. They have broken every record that you can think of. They have had a tremendous impact in the Japanese industry. And they have a lot of awards, they have shaped K-pop. So this is and was an important group. But once these three artists decided to separate from the group, the whole power machine behind TVXQ, that is SM, started to mobilize so that they could block them and ostracize them and keep them out and just basically make them pay for separating from the group. But unexpectedly, the fans started to mobilize. And one of the ways in which they organized was through online discussions and groups. They used social media to mobilize, to fund campaigns to defend these artists, and went as far as filing legal suits and winning. And they also had to fight against perceptions that they were just you know, the fan base was blowing things out of proportion and they may have been hysterics or something like that. So, but what happens is through this mobilization power, they outsmarted SM Entertainment in defense of their artists and themselves. And they won as SM moved the strings to outcast and ostracize their former employees. In defending their artists, who eventually formed the group JYJ, the TVXQ fans used their power as consumers to set a precedent to defend the human rights of their article of their idols and pave the way for the recognition and legal protection of artists in Korea in general. I think they made it possible for groups like Omega X, that was in the news in 2022, to stand up against their agency, Spire Entertainment and its CEO. In Omega X's case, it was revealed how they were abused at different levels, including sexually, and they were believed and not re-victimized through smear campaigns paid for by their agency and its allies. 
A stand that was also possible because a fan in Los Angeles in the United States reported a situation that reflected this dynamic and posted it to Twitter. And this opened the door for other abuses to come to light in the case of Omega X. I became, I was just in awe of the fans of K-pop and K-artists. They're self-aware, they're a positive force that protects and nurtures its artists, and it's admirable how they came through for them. Lee compares the situation between JYJ and SM with that of the story of David and Goliath. That is the little guy fighting the big guy against what seemed to be like impossible odds. When I first read this and I was preparing the episode, I thought of uh, Lance Armstrong and how he actually fought a lot of people who said he was doping. By the way, if you don't know who that is, he was a world famous cyclist who for years uh, won a lot of awards and still claimed that he wasn't doping and he took a lot of people to court whenever they actually said that he was doping but right now two of the more relevant ones that I can think of that are still ongoing in terms of uh, fighting because it was eventually proved proven that Lance Armstrong was in fact doping two of those kinds of fights are the current uh, the anti-gun advocates versus gun makers and gun activists. I agree with you having your guns and your right to uh, hold guns, but not with the ones that require something like automatic rifles. I just don't get why civilians would need to actually have those and I still don't understand up until what point a lot of kids are going to die in school shootings before this actually becomes regulated to any kind of manageable degree. And the other one is the student borrowers versus the unregulated student loan industry. Those are the two that I could come up with, but I'm pretty sure that if I started to scrutinize and think about personal stories or stories that I've witnessed, I would find a lot more uh, whistleblower kind of stories or outcasting stories that would reflect in David versus Goliath uh, kind of dynamic. Can you think of anything else, dear listener? And speaking of engaged fans, this edited volume on Hallyu also discusses the fans of K-television series, which is where I fit in the most, I think. Chapter 6, titled The Interactive Nature of Korean TV Dramas, Flexible Text, Discursive Consumption, and Social Media by Young Young Ah, looks at the relationship between K-drama storytelling and production and reception and feedback from fans online. It is also the last chapter out of all the 11 chapters that I'm going to summarize. <laughs> Someone out there must be going like, oh, thank God, was she going to summarize all of them? No, just the ones that appeal the most to me after the general summary of the book. Mirroring the music industry labor exploitation and power asymmetries to many degrees, according to this chapter, the cost-cutting cut, um, practices of the television industry help one to understand why, in spite of the quality of some series, many K-dramas endings tend to be so bad and rushed. Like Black and Signal, which is a series specifically referenced by the author, and according to Ah, Signal was finished 50 minutes before broadcasting, 
because of uh, rushed editing, last minute scripting, changing, or minute life filming. And you can see that in this series. This series was amazing up until the very end, which was pooped. The fact that sleep deprivation seems to be standard in the, in, in the industry with actors and crew working long days for three to six months and contracts not specifying the number of hours per day is saddening. And the reality of these dynamics taint the fantasies portrayed in the series, at least for me. The power and ability of the fandom to show support, express influence, and act on what they like seems to be extraordinary and admirable in this case too. How K-series fans socialize and interact online with each other to discuss characters, actors, plots, and how these activities shape the content of the series as producers and writers respond to what works and what the fans want, it's quite amazing. All describes one of the ways that fans, for instance, show support. And uh, this is often done in the form of snack deliveries. These snack deliveries are like kind of like the fans start talking about supporting their favorite crew and series and they collect money and then they pay for snacks to be delivered to to the crew and uh, the actors as they're filming and then the main characters whomever it is and they're supporting that it's their favorite they take a picture with the snacks and then they post them online to actually show appreciation and if you watch the series beauty inside you'll understand how this looks like it was nice to learn that as portrayed in that particular case series this is a very real phenomenon in korea and it's not just like a grander than life gesture though in the series <clears throat> it may seem but it is based in reality the chapter also addresses two subjects that have puzzled me or that um, you can actively see in K-series and someone out there may be going, she's puzzled a lot of the time. Yes, yes, I am. That's why I'm actually putting all of that energy and puzzlement into this project in part. So those um, two subjects are what attracts fans to the male leads. And according to the author, it's a combination of more maturity and the way that the male actors look. And apparently online, because it's anonymous, a lot of the female fans are a lot more open about how much the physical attributes of the male actors appeal to them. But there is also an element of the maturity of the characters, like whether or not the male character is sensitive and things like that. And the second subject is the existence of secondary romantic couples in what O refers to as a love rectangle. And what a love rectangle is, is where two heterosexual couples are at the center of the plots, with one being the lead and the other the best friend of the lead characters are somehow connected. Apparently how these characters look and how much screen time they get depends on their appeal to the audience. And talk about the power of the audience as a consumer to shape storylines and content. And by the way, examples of this love rectangle, business proposal series. You can definitely see it there. So what did you Google? I basically googled, as I was reading this book, any groups, actors, singers referenced in the chapters. Like, I wanted to understand the Yon-sama phenomenon. I googled all of that, the series, to see whether or not I could find them, like the Winter Sonata one. I couldn't, by the way. Some of them. I could find references, but not streaming availability. I also looked up 
Hot U 3.0 and then from Hot U 3.0 I went into Hot U 4.0 and any kind of research that I came across just superficially. And I also YouTubed Janet Jackson TLC Destiny's Child and I also YouTube Paula Abdul because um, I wanted to see whether or not making a reference to um, this singer's made sense when comparing them with um, the girl groups. What did you Google? I used the expression ah copper light during this episode and you dear listener may be wondering what is that? Copper lights are fossilized animal fecal matter. In other words, they are all animal poop that has become a fossil. I figure it would be a m more polite to say ah coprolite than to say ah shit. I also used the word pooped, but that was unintended. So either I'm feeling a lot more comfortable with this podcast process and production, or this podcast is going down this catalogical drain even before it's done with the first season. But for the sake of polite conversation and perhaps to encourage an appreciation of coprology as a field of study, I kid you not, it exists. Can we turn this expression into the first six books around the world podcast wave? Out of everything that you could learn from this podcast, this is the first thing. Make it into a thing. What do you think, dear listener? And that is what I leave you with until the next episode. Ah, copper light. Oh, my God.